Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Pat, the first thing I always like to ask people, and you can go in whatever direction you'd like, but uh, what were you like growing up? What are some of the defining characteristics or things that stand out to you when you think back to your childhood? Uh, well, I loved sports. Surprise, surprise, right? You know, always playing sports year-round. Um, very active. My parents were um, involved in the small private Christian school that I went to school and church on the same campus. And so six days a week I was there. I played a lot of music, played a lot of sports, and it was the kind of place where they were like, hey, if you have the interest in learning how to do something and being putting in a lot of time into doing it, you know, you'll be, have the opportunity to do that. So I played three sports in high school, and I played the drums and the guitar and the praise worship band there at the school and at the church and um, was involved in student council quite a bit. So very active, not a lot of downtime. Um, but, man, growing up in Southern California and Huntington Beach, uh, the weather was great, about 360 days a year, so I spent a lot of time at the beach, too, in the mornings, and, and um, man, I had a great childhood overall. It really was a cool experience growing up. All right, so I guess, first of all, what was it about sports? What what drew you to sports then? Not necessarily what has drawn you to sports to, to keep that as a profession now, but back then, like, what, why sports? Were your parents really into sports, or was it just something yeah. that you were drawn to? And my dad is a huge sports fan, uh, especially high school football and baseball. And so we grew up going to baseball games a lot. But we also went to all of the school that I grew up going to, all of the football and basketball games. And I was actually a ball boy for the high school football team starting at like four years old, running out, getting the tee and getting the football, you know, from the officials, things like that, water boy all the way up through. So, it, you know, it, for whatever reason, at a young age, it just clicked with me to, you know, really want to be a part of that. I loved football and I loved baseball, especially. And, you know, and so it was just a huge part of my life with my dad growing up and my younger brother as well. And, um, you know, and then I started playing at a fairly young age, T-ball and flag football and basketball, all of these things, and had some success in some of it. You know, some of the other, you know, sometimes it didn't, it took a little bit of time, you know, but, um, you know, when, when it's something that your whole family is into, you have the opportunity to be a part of it consistently. And then if you have a little bit of success in it, too, I think it just makes natural sense that 
you know, kind of gravitate towards that. And so it just became a really big thing for me in my childhood growing up. All right. Now you mentioned Southern California and I went to school out there as, as you know, we've talked about USC a bunch, but there's, and, and not to like stereotype, but you are not, you don't have like the Southern California surfer bro disposition. And we probably both have several friends who do, and there's nothing wrong with that. But like, I wouldn't look at you and be like Southern California, just like, I don't think people would look at me and say Dallas, Texas, but right. uh, so how, like, what are the most California things about you? I know you said you like the beach, but are you like, do you surf? Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, are, are you, is that like your, your heaven is to just go to a beach? Like whenever you and the family go on vacation, but like what, what's something like really Cali about you? <laughs> Yeah, no, I grew up surfing. Um, I wasn't great um, because I you know, was more committed to traditional sports, you know, but I did surf quite a bit with my friends growing up. I had an old pickup truck, and we used to throw surfboards in the back of it and head out and, you know, quite a bit in the summertime surf a lot. So I do miss that a lot. Um, as far as a Cali thing, a Southern California thing, you know, I love fish tacos. That's probably my favorite food on the planet is Rubio's Fish Tacos, which is a chain out in the West Coast. They have great uh, Baja Mexican food. And so that's something I miss quite a bit. And it's, you know, just like maybe not feeling as Southern Californian now, I would probably venture to guess that a little bit of that has worn off as I've lived other places around the country. I mean, I went to school in Virginia. I've lived three years in Fayetteville, Arkansas, then three years in Louisville, Kentucky, and now coming up on eight years in Dallas. So, you know, it's a part of who I am and and I, and I miss the beach and I miss Southern California in some aspects a lot, but I also think that you kind of take little bits and pieces of every place that you go and it becomes a part of kind of who you are and your story. And so there are certain things for sure, you know, like my, I love rainbow sandals and, you know, um, you know, bonfires at the beach are definitely probably my favorite thing of all time, but I don't get to do that quite a bit here in Dallas. So I've just kind of gotten used to a new way of life here and we love it here. You know, I think this is a great place to live. And people have, you know, done. They've been incredible to my family and I. We have some of the best friends we've ever had in our lives here in North Texas. So I couldn't be happier living here now. All right. So, uh, let's see. I'm trying to think which path to go down first. Uh, all right. So you mentioned bouncing around, and, and that's very normal for you know someone in, in this industry. You know, I, I've you you rattled off the places you've lived, and you know, I've lived in Minnesota, Montana, Michigan, and and you know before I got to come back uh, come back home to DFW. When you think back to, to those stops, what are things that stand out to you, whether it's like from a professional growth, personal growth side of things, or just the, the life experiences of getting to live different parts of the country? I, I, like, what are the first things that kind of come to mind? Well, I always say that one of the greatest things that happened to me was going to school back east, you know, like on the East Coast in Virginia, away from my comfort zone there, because, I mean, it's an education in itself, just experiencing different culture, different people from different parts of the country. And then like, I mean, I mean, you know, dude, from, from your time living in, in California, when you went to SC, I had never experienced having to like scrape ice off of a windshield before, you know, I had never lived in a place where it consistently was below 60 degrees or above 90 degrees. And it's funny, but like little things like that, like seasons, you know, people take that for granted and they might think that it's paradise and it really is great. You know, weather-wise in California, I get it, but there is something cool about there being like the change in the seasons, things like that. So from just the living in different places aspect, I think that's been great. But also, I mean, you just, when you learn more about people 
and their backstory and about where they're from, I think that it just makes you a more well-rounded person. And so the fact that I've been able to live in Southern California, in Virginia, in Arkansas, right in the middle of SEC country where they care about SEC sports more than anything there in Fayetteville, then in Louisville, Kentucky, getting to experience the Kentucky Derby. I stood at the finish line two years in a row there. Louisville and Kentucky both won national championships in basketball while I was there. And, I mean, college basketball there is like football in Dallas-Fort Worth. So it's like it's everything there. Getting to experience these different things and then now the football craze and passion that's here in Texas, man, it's, it's just it's cool and it makes you kind of appreciate that we live in this giant country where it's everybody has just these different things that make each location special and different, but they really are special and different and it's cool. And you make friends in each, each spot along the way and everybody just brings a little bit of peace to your story as well. I'm I'm curious from when you think to where you are now or think of where you are now professionally uh, versus where you were when you left Liberty University, you mentioned going to college, what, what was the most challenging source or area for growth? What, like, what was something like for me, I think it was just like getting comfortable when the red light turned on to find my own voice uh, as a broadcaster, whether it was for sports talk or play-by-play, and to not feel like I was constantly emulating others, what was that for you? What was the, the dangling carrot that took the, the longest to actually finally snatch? Oh, there's no question that it's, it's the comfort when you're live, right? I mean, because every, anybody can look good and sound good on camera when you can do 75 takes, right? I mean, it makes sure every word is perfect. But it's getting to that spot where you just kind of feel comfortable being yourself and you're even okay if you kind of mess up a word here or there because, well, it's just kind of part of, you know, like being in the moment and being live and being comfortable. I I just – I respect the people at the top so much. Guys like – I mean, man, a guy like Scott Van Pelt comes to mind. Who is more comfortable on camera than Scott Van Pelt? He is just so smooth and comfortable – And that, too, when, like, young college students come to me and they say, hey, what should I work on? I'm like, look at a guy like Scott. Look at a guy like Kirk Herbstreit. You know, look at a guy like Mike Tirico. These are all people who are super comfortable and smooth when they're live on the air, and they're just able to be themselves and not try to play the part of someone else. And it's hard to put your finger on exactly what that is, but I think anybody who watches someone on TV who is comfortable and smooth they can say, okay, I feel that, that that guy has something to him or that girl has something to her about being that smooth on-camera person in that moment, and they're okay being themselves. And that just brings a confidence to the broadcast that, again, that's something that the casual viewer can't put a finger on, but they can definitely feel it when it's not comfortable. They can definitely feel it when it feels really scripted or when it feels tense and uncomfortable and the person's nervous. So it's that takes a long time, man. That's why when anybody asks me about how to get into broadcasting and college students come to me and they say, Hey, what, what, what should my journey look like? How can I get to Dallas? How can I get to network that I always tell them, well, first of all, I cannot recommend highly enough going to live and work in smaller markets because you're going to make a lot of mistakes when you're new at this because it's hard and you'd much rather do that in a smaller market than in Dallas, Fort Worth, or like you, when you're talking about, on you know a national major league baseball broadcast potentially where people around the world could be listening to a Rangers game, 
I think I'd much rather be doing that in, like you said, where you stopped in Minnesota or Michigan or smaller markets along the way before you got to where you are now. Pat, it's it's not just the world. We have uh, aliens and other planets who are big Rangers fans, just so you know. Hey, man. Hey, look, the Rangers, that's a worldwide industry right there, man. And it, you do a great job on the broadcast. It's, well, that I can't confirm that. I, I, I don't know if I agree with that, but we are a, a galactical team. So uh, I, I'm curious, you know, one of the things I get asked a ton, I, I got asked way more before I had a role that wasn't like, that people weren't familiar with uh, from afar. Like when I told people when, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm going to go live in Minnesota. I'm, you know, sports broadcaster. Oh, like you want to be on sports center. Like that was the, I, I probably got asked that in the first five years after high school and, and college more than any other question specific to my field. Uh, now my role and what I do, my skill set is totally different from that. Yours is more in that arena. Did you grow up watching sports center wanting to be, a sports center anchor like Stuart Scott. You mentioned Scott Van Pelt, who's you know now doing his own sort of sports center type thing, but but you know was in that role before Dan Patrick. Like some of these like sports center anchor legends that were so big when you and I were growing up. Was that like an inspiration for you at all? I had two that stood out from that aspect: um, NFL primetime with Berman and Tom Jackson. I mean that was must-watch TV every Sunday night in our house, and then college game day on Saturday mornings with Chris Fowler, Kirk Herbstreet, uh, Lee Corso. I mean, that was the dream in some aspects. And in another aspect, I actually wanted to do what you do right now. I wanted to be a radio Major League Baseball play-by-play broadcaster. That was the dream for a while. But what happens is, and this goes back to what we talked about earlier, living in different things, different experiences shape your journey. So after my freshman year of college, I applied for about 70 internships in minor league baseball teams, local TV stations, national, I mean, ESPN, Sports Illustrated, anywhere that I had a place where I felt comfortable that there was a family member within about 30 miles of the place that would let me sleep on their couch for the summer, I applied for it. And I only heard back from two places. It was the local CBS affiliate in Nashville, Tennessee, and the local ABC affiliate, KABC in Los Angeles. So I had a ton of small town TV stations tell me I was not qualified to be an intern in places like, for example, I had family in Greenville, South Carolina, and they were like, no, man, I'm sorry. You're not qualified for this. But for some reason, Stan Radford, I still remember the guy. He's still there at KABC and ABC sports in Los Angeles saw something in my resume and said, we're going to give you a chance. I don't know what that was and why he did it, but it changed my life because I ended up interning two summers in a row at KBC and became really close friends with the weekend sports anchor who is still there, Kurt Sandoval, who is my mentor and one of my best friends uh, just in life in general now. He taught me how to tell stories. He made me fall in love with being a storyteller. He worked a lot with me on trying to get more comfortable on camera. It didn't necessarily work for a long time, but eventually I think it got there to an extent. Um, and that changed my life. That made me really want to pursue local sports as a storyteller on TV. And um, I had some amazing experiences with that, that internship there. Things like my first ever internship I ever did was they sent me to Dodger Stadium and I did a one-on-one with Jimmy Kimmel. I was 19 years old. I had never interviewed, interviewed anyone in my life. And my first interview was with Jimmy Kimmel on the field at Dodger Stadium for ABC in L.A. 
I mean, it was terrible. He was awesome. But these are the kind of things where, like, you experience something like that, and I think it changes your dreams sometimes. It can be like, okay, I think this is actually what I want to do. So it, that's where things really started to change. All right, Pat, I got to ask you about something that is is so identifiable with you, and you get made fun of for this, you get lauded for this, you know, whether you're given a hard time about it or not. I think that, you know, people are, are truly in admiration of your positive disposition. I mean, you've never had uh, a bad day. I've never seen you. I've never seen you sulk. I've ne- I mean, I'm sure you, you know, you're, listen, you're married with two kids and we're going to get into the family side of things in a little bit, but I think anyone who's married with kids, like their stresses, their uh, things that go on, things out of your control, I, like you would never know. I mean, you it, like, I, and I, I've said this to your face off air, but I, I want to make sure people listening know how it feel. I, I mean, I love you for a lot of reasons. I, I, you're one of my favorite people in this, uh, in this industry. But like your your attitude is, I unrivaled. I, I like I legitimately don't know anyone. Maybe like Mister Rogers, like Mister Rogers from Mister Rogers' neighborhood. Fred Rogers, like I guess maybe has like a similar disposition. At least that's how it came off. But like, where where does that come from? Like, are your parents? I know like your faith is a big part of what you you know who you are and 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 you know, how you how you go about your life. But, like, I know people who are of similar levels of faith who aren't this positive, so I know that can't be the only reason. So where does this all come from? Well, you know, first of all, thank you. That was very nice of you to say. Um, Mr. Rogers is much more positive than me, so we're not going to go – we're not going to put my me in that category there. And uh, my wife can confirm this if we need to get her on later at some point. But um, – you know, my faith plays a huge role in it for sure. Uh, the fact that, you know, Jared, we, we get one life, man. You know, we get one shot at this thing, and it's just, I don't know, something clicked early on in my life where it just kind of hit square right between the eyes where it was like, man, you get, you get one shot at this thing. Why would you ever want to spend this precious time sulking or down or struggling with and focusing on the things that are that are negative so you know my faith plays a huge role in this you know i'm i'm a devout christian and um I, you know i'm striving to try and be like jesus every single day be somebody who um shines positivity and hope consistently um you know so from a personal standpoint it comes from that it comes from you know a lot of friends that i have who are also uh, you know the kind of people who you know, we're, we're trying to be like the kind of people that we're trying to be, right? I mean, like we're trying, everybody is going to naturally tend to move towards energy and positivity. And really there was a, it goes back to the internship at KABC. There was a moment that stood out to me too, where my mentor, Kurt, pointed out one of their meteorologists there. And he was like, everybody loves that guy. You want to know why everybody loves that guy? I was like, why? You know, he goes, because the guy just clearly loves his job and just bring so much infectious energy and positivity to the broadcast and to the newsroom and all that. It was like, everybody loves that guy. Be that guy on air. And I was like, well, I'm kind of already that guy in person. Maybe I should try and make this work on TV too, you know, and be that same person and be myself. And it just kind of turned into, you know, who I am, you know, all the way around, which as I said earlier, it makes things a lot easier if you can be yourself when you're on TV. But, you know, sometimes I think these things are a little bit natural too. We're, we're all blessed with things that are easier and more difficult. And so, you know, being a natural optimist has always been um, 
something that comes a little easier to me than for some others. But at the same time, it's not always that way, Jared. I can assure you, there are some days where uh, where it's a little doom and gloom, you know, where we we have a little bit of down days from time to time. All right, so let me ask you, just because I've never been around you to experience you deal with this sort of thing, like how do you process? you know, the moments that other people might more outwardly demonstrate their stress or their frustration, like how, how do you process that? How, how do you deal, whether it's personally or professionally, how, like what are the things that you do or, or, or the ways you go about overcoming these things? Well, first and foremost, you try to think big picture. I mean, at least that's what I do. I try to think when something is happening in the moment that is worthy of having me potentially be a little down in this moment, is it something that I'm going to look back five years from now and think, well, I'm really glad that I spent a lot of time being down in the dumps about that, you know, trying to have perspective in the big picture. Uh, The second thing is frankly, based off of like what you were saying earlier, I know that now at this point, you know, people kind of look to me to be somebody who's a little, you know, more optimistic and is kind of high energy and brings that mentality to a situation. And so, you know, I'm trying to be a leader at the same time as well. I'm trying to lead in everybody has different ways of being a leader and being someone who is about positive change in different ways or, or making an impact on other people. And if me being able to stand strong and be firm and have a steady hand, even through a storm, even through a difficult circumstance can be motivating to someone else to have a similar approach and to try to get through a difficult circumstance, well, that's leadership, and that's something that I pride myself in as well. So, um, you know, it's not always easy, and um, we're all going to go through difficult, challenging things. You know, I've been through plenty of challenging things in my life, but at the same time, God has blessed me tremendously too. I mean, I, I have been able to do some amazing things professionally. I have an amazing wife, kids, family, friends. I mean, job, all of these things have all worked out in so many different ways that, yeah, things have been challenging in some aspects, but like I said, man, we have one shot at this thing in life. Why would I focus on those when there have been so many incredible things that God has blessed me with? I'd rather much spend much rather spend my time focusing and, and being locked in on that. Okay, so and and that's awesome to hear. Like it really, I, I people who listen to the fan hear people call you positive, Pat, and and maybe they just don't realize like the full extent of it. Like I mean, you really are. It's in all areas. I mean, you probably could take a a situation where there are nothing but gray clouds above. And it's like, you're instilling some level of like confidence or belief that uh, everything's going to be okay. And I think that's in part of that's like your passion. Uh, I don't know that you really do stuff that does not have some degree of passion. And one of those things uh, is high school football. Uh, And in our industry, I think the goal is to cover sports at the highest level, Or, or maybe some people, you know, they're really just college football junkies, and that's, you know, they prefer that over the NFL game. But usually it goes beyond the high school level. And you cover the Cowboys, the Stars, the Mavericks, the Rangers, uh, you know, the college athletics, at, you know, at a high level, whether it's UT or if OU's in a big game. I mean, you're you're involved in all of that. So it's not like high school football is the, the, the you know, the stop for you in terms of your your scope of coverage. But, like, you embrace the heck out of this and love the heck out of this. And I, where, I mean, I guess you mentioned it earlier, you grew up so tied to, to high school football programs as a ball boy and the, the T runner and, and all that stuff. But like, I don't know. Is that where it stems from? Why, why is this so 
so much of a passion for you? Yeah, that's definitely where it started was growing up with it being a passion. Um, you know, when I talk to my dad about sports back home, um, one of the main things that we talk about is high school football in Southern California, modern day, St. John Bosco, Orange Lutheran, these other powerhouse programs, Servite out in Southern California, because he follows it very closely. And so I did growing up as well. And, you know, we would, my high school would play games on Saturday nights because we were a private school and that's a pretty common thing in Southern California. And so my dad and I would all the time, we would go to a different high school football game on a Friday night that involved two good teams that we have no ties to the school whatsoever. So that, that definitely was a part of my childhood. One of the reasons I love my job at NBC five so much in Dallas is because I'm able to do both of those things. You're right. Most people, you know, grow up if they're in this industry wanting to cover things at the highest level. Well, I mean, it's hard to beat getting to cover about 14 to 16, depending on the year, Dallas Cowboys football games a year, home and away, going to training camp in Oxnard for a couple of weeks most years. I know this year they're at the star. Going to Rangers spring training for a week or two every year, getting a chance to cover the Mavericks and the stars, all of that. I get to do all of those things. But then I also get to still follow that high school football passion that I've had for a long time. And really, man, I mean, it matters in the community that we live in. People, they, they really, um, they relate to their home community high school football team. And I know that just because when we go out to a different game for NBC5 for our big game Friday game of the week, which begins tonight, I know I'm dating this and I apologize, but like we're, I'm on my way right now to our first high school football game of the year. And it's, the community is going to be rallying around the teams that are there because they identify with that team. And, and it's a big part of the community here in North Texas. So I've always loved it. I love that I get to still do it here, but I also love that I get to have the other aspects too and cover things like the Cowboys, Ranger stars, Mavericks, TCU, SMU, FC Dallas, all of the other things that are going on here in North Texas. All right, Pat, uh, I want to ask you, we're going to get into family in a second, but I want to ask you about Liberty. You went to Liberty University, uh, and we had a conversation uh, six months ago, a year, I, I don't know, whenever it was, and you, you, you know, like I like we talked about, you're a very passionate person, but you had grown frustrated with maybe the direction of Liberty, and, and Liberty's been in the news recently with Jerry Falwell and uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure that's, you know, not something that you're, uh, waving the flag for by any means, but I'm just curious from a general sense. Cause it, I know you love USC as well from your Southern California ties. And, and I, I am so passionate about my alma mater USC, but, uh, USC by no means has, uh, gone down the right path with, you know, things, whether it's sports related or non-sports related, you know, it seems like any, any issue with a college, it's like USC's probably involved somehow. And that's always been tough for me to reconcile because it doesn't change the love I have for USC. It's like I'm a, a a dad who's just like disappointed in his son, but like I still love my son. And I guess I'm curious, like how have you dealt with that with your alma mater and like the ways that you approach the passion, the pride that you you have or had uh, in going to Liberty and, you know, Liberty's a, a, a unique school and, and, you know, the way it's, you know, the way it goes about business, you know, it's usually people who go to live Liberty, I think probably have a lot of pride and, you know, Hey, I, I went to Liberty. Like this is, that was a choice I made. And I, I don't know, I I'm rambling here, but what are, how have you been able to, to process a lot of this? Well, I mean, it's been hard to process the situation, Jared, just to be frank. I mean, the whole thing, 
has been very challenging because as, as we said earlier, I mean, I'm very passionate about my faith. I'm very passionate about trying to be someone who represents who my faith represents, right? And that's Jesus. You know, I'm trying my best to be a representative of that to my friends, to complete strangers, to people who are kind to me, to people who are rude to me. And I fail daily in this. And that's one of the reasons that I went to Liberty at the time. You know, I went and I felt as if the university really was all about trying to trying to train people to come to school there and represent our faith while also getting a quality education to prepare, um, to prepare people to go and work in the public sector in different ways, not just in ministry. It's the biggest Christian school in America. And, you know, in recent years, it definitely has gotten more tense. It definitely has gotten more political. It has, it has gone away sometimes from feeling like faith first. And that's, that's sometimes what's been a little bit challenging with that circumstance. Um, you know, as far as the specifics of what's happened with Jerry Falwell Jr., you know, I don't, I don't know what happened there. And, and you know, frankly, I, I don't feel super comfortable speaking to it just because there's so much unknown and it's an embarrassing situation for a place that, you know, meant a lot to me. I met my wife there. I have some great friends who went there. There are great people at Liberty, but obviously what happened there in that circumstance doesn't represent what the university represents. And so, um, you know, I hope that it gets back to a place that can have a reputation and a mentality there on campus. And in some aspects it still has even through these challenging times. Um, but I want it to be a place where people go and they say, you know what, first and foremost, we're training people to, be believers and follow in our faith. And number one in following in our faith is putting other people's souls ahead of caring about differences of opinion and political, dis- you know, disagreements and things like that. And so that's been the most challenging thing is that sometimes I think that's been lost in the, uh, the main core values and message over the last few years. And that makes it challenging because like you said, with USC, when they fall into and they have something that happens that you don't necessarily want to be associated with, but still you have so many great memories there and so many great friends, you know, from your time there. And it helped you in so many different ways. It's hard to kind of separate one from the other, right? I mean, it's like, you don't know totally how to react to it. So um, I'm hoping that it can kind of get back to what it was. I feel like when I was there and um, you know, we'll kind of see what it goes like in the future here in the next few years. But um, that's the reason that I went there. And like I said, I had many great experiences there. They helped me tremendously in my career. I met my wife the first day of our sophomore year, and I'm super thankful for that. And, and I still have some, a lot of incredible friends from there, too. But it's definitely a challenging circumstance right now. And, and I appreciate you sharing on that. I mean, I, like, obviously, well, I mean, I, I don't want to say USC hasn't had something to that degree because, unfortunately, USC's had professors and heads of departments that have done things that, uh, are despicable, uh, and then you know they've had their own. You know, athletically they've had their issues, and then you know you got the Lori Laughlin and uh, Felicity Huffman and the the bribery. I mean, it's just I, like, and I always wonder, like I, I mean, it's funny. I'm I'm wearing a USC shirt now as I speak to you, and I have I have so much pride in USC, but like they've they've had their things where it's like I don't align, I don't agree, uh, I don't. I, 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 this is not the school. Like, I don't want to wave the flag of the school for these reasons, but, um, I've always been conflicted with that. 
Uh, well, and I will say one other thing about it, Jared, too, that makes it a little different is that when you're a faith-based school, okay, and you're a school that is on it, I mean, the Bible specifically calls, you know, Christians to be a, a light on a hill, right? You know, salt of the earth, salt of the world type thing, to stand out, to be different. You're going to be held to a different standard. I mean, that's just all there is to it. And when there are mistakes that are made, it's going to create more, you know, more challenging circumstances in that situation, because I have fully accepted that because I profess my faith and I am willing to say what I say about things, that I'm going to be held to a different standard sometimes. And so that's what, that's what sometimes can make it a little bit, you know, more challenging and difficult there too. But yeah, it's definitely a tough circumstance right now. All right, Pat, you have a beautiful daughter, Barlow, uh, and a son, Hudson, uh, and, uh, Hudson was adopted and he's got cerebral palsy and you you really share some of the challenges and, and really the achievements, the, the the milestones of his life uh, on social media. And it's it's oftentimes the best thing on social media that day. Uh, and, and recently, you know, going to kindergarten with his, uh, you know, with his the assistance with the, the chair and the ability to communicate through. Uh, technology and some of the amazing elements of science and whatnot. But uh, the reality is Hudson is not, you know, he, he's he's probably never going to be able to do a lot of the things that he won't be able to do this, you know, perhaps, and, and have the a, a conversation, you know, the way we're doing it. And, and he's he's overcome. I mean, the, how tough this kid is, is is incredible. So I guess, first of all, I what led to, if you don't mind me asking, adopting Hudson? And I think so many parents probably when they think of adopting a kid they think of adopting a a kid with health who doesn't have some of the challenges that Hudson has uh why why was that the right decision for you and, and your wonderful wife Shalina why why Hudson and uh you know what went into that decision well early on in our time dating Shalina told me that she felt that God was calling her to adopt someday that she felt like her, her dad is a pastor. My father-in-law is a pastor in Virginia Beach. And there was a family in their church who had adopted a little girl from China when she was very young. And Shalina had just kind of seen how it transformed the little girl's life, obviously, um, going from an orphanage in China to living with a family in the United States, embracing her as their own. But also it changed the family in a dramatic way. I mean, it just it completely shapes and changes your worldview about the fact that, like, hey, we can embrace other people, and it's not just blood. It's also, hey, let's find a way to try and do for the least of these, right? And so, um, you know, I never thought about it. I started looking into it, and, you know, the number of orphans in the United States who are available to be adopted and who are waiting for a family is heartbreaking. And so um, she and I agreed that we would do it someday. So we got married. We uh, we had... <laughs> A bunch of student loan debt we had to pay off. We got that all done. We had our first daughter, you know, our first child, Barlow, as you mentioned. And then we said, it's go time. It's time to adopt. And so we went through the process, and it took us a little less than a year um, to be selected. And we, we got the phone call that uh, our son had been born. And so we drove there the next, you know, that day. He had been born the night before. We met him, stayed with him for a few days in the hospital, and brought him home. And, um, you know, he six months later officially was our son. Um, and so it just was the, it was amazing. Like everything was going great. You know, we couldn't believe that, you know, how awesome he was, that it took literally under a year to have it happen is unheard of. 
everything was coming together great. And then about two or three months after the adoption was finalized, he started to not progress in different things. He started to not be able to lift his head up or roll over or crawl. And his arms and hands kept fisting, you know, a lot up high up by his chin, you know. And so um, we started doing the Google searches and, uh, you know, going to WebMD and, and typing in these things. And, of course, that's usually a terrible idea because it's telling you the worst case scenario almost every single time. And it just kept coming back with these were signs of cerebral palsy. And um, we were like, no way, no chance. We called this pediatrician. She was like, I don't think that's it. But if you want to go and meet with a pediatric neurologist, we can arrange for that to happen. And uh, she can kind of do a quick check over just to make sure that's not what it is. And so a few weeks later, we went and met with the pediatric neurologist. And she did a few pokes and prods on, on the changing table there and moved his arms and legs a little bit. And dude, within 10 minutes, she sat us down and she said he has CP. And we were just like, like, how, what, how, how is that possible? How do you know? And she was like, well, we'll do a, a full scan of his brain here in a week or two, a CAT scan. Um, but I'm positive right now with the different things that he's doing right now, these are clear cut signs that he has cerebral palsy. And so clearly, I mean, that was one of the hardest days of our life hearing that. Uh, we had a lot of questions, um, you know, frankly, for God, you know, about why this had happened to us and less selfishly, why this was happening to our boy, you know, a kid who had done nothing wrong, who had already had to go through what's going to be emotionally challenging. And it is for most people who are adopted, trying to find out why they had been chosen to be adopted and everything that happens with that. Um, and it's been a journey, man. You know, we've had a lot of challenging things, but as you mentioned, we've had a lot of successes too. And Hudson is inspiring so many people who have never even met him before through social media, through taking steps when he was never supposed to be able to walk through being able to communicate and read as a four-year-old and letting us and communicating with us on a device that was, um, designed by Microsoft for Steve Gleason, the ALS uh, patient from former New Orleans Saints player. That same technology is what Hudson's using. He started using it when he was two years old. And everybody around him, all of the specialists were like, this is unheard of. We have never seen a kid this young do this. And he's doing all of this, and he's missing a part of his brain. So I always joke around. I'm like, can you imagine this guy had his whole brain, like how, you know, what he would be doing and the way he would be changing the world. So um, he is going to a regular kindergarten class right now with an aide. Um, he's able, to, like I said, to, to read, to communicate. He has a chair that he can drive with his head. Um, he doesn't do that super well yet, but we're going to get there. And he has incredible motion right now compared to what we thought was going to happen with his left hand. And he's going to get to the point where he can drive his chair using his left hand. So um, challenging to say the least, but, you know, I mean, man, the mountains put in front of us, he just keeps knocking them down and he keeps doing things that, I think most experts and specialists would have told us were never possible when we got the diagnosis, when we saw the CAT scan originally. And here we are now, and he's not, he just turned, today's his fifth birthday. So he's five years old today. And man, he's just, he's incredibly inspiring. He inspires me every single day as well. And you know what? Going full circle, he's probably a big reason why I am so pos positive and optimistic about the world. Because if he's positive and optimistic through what he's going through on a day to day basis, how the heck can I not be positive? going through small challenges compared to what he has to go through on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and I appreciate you sharing that. And I think one of the reasons why, I mean, I, I think you 
you probably have to be without a heart to not be moved in some way by by Hudson's story. But you know, as you know, I have a charity that that serves kids with physical uh, and cognitive disabilities, and uh, and and hopefully being able to to provide opportunities, much like you know what you and and your wife have have done for for HUD. Uh, and one of the things I learned very quickly, and, and I think I'd learned this before I started the charity, I think it's one reason why I wanted to do it, is that, you know, I guess it's it's geared to serve others, but, like, at the end of the day, like, I think I'm just as impacted by these kids as hopefully they're impacted by the work we do, like how inspiring they are and, uh, you know, just their their disposition and their attitudes. And I guess I'm curious, like, how how do you think parenting and, and I don't mean to take anything away from from Barlow. She's a sweetheart and her guitar skills are uh, are, you know, uh, off the chain and she's so cute. I, and, and I'm sure that this is one of the things you have to balance It's not like forgetting about her because so much attention needs to go to Hudson. But how how do you how do you think that's influenced you personally and professionally just parenting Hudson and uh, and, and, and the way that's just impacted you? Well, number one, I think that we have embraced a philosophy in our family that we don't treat him differently, that we treat him the same, and that we're not one of these families who it's like, you know, that if you looked at our family, if you looked at our Facebook pages or like on social media, or if you met us, we wouldn't like introduce ourselves ourselves as like a cerebral palsy family, right? I mean, like we have decided that, we are going to make the most of this circumstance and that he's going to knock down as many of these challenges and obstacles in his way as possible. And so that's number one is that we go into it. Hudson's friends, you know, he goes to school and he has a ton of friends at church and school and just other friends that we interact. And most of them don't have special needs. I mean, they're just, they're regular kindergartners or first graders or second graders. And they all love Hudson because he's funny and he's super positive and like, he cracks jokes on his device and like he has the most infectious laugh ever, you know, when like he thinks something is hilarious and like there's just all these different things. So number one, I think we have really gone out of our way to make sure that we don't treat him different differently unless it's the things that are out of our control, right? The things that just come physically, there are some limitations that he has. And then as far as, you know, how it's impacted me and all in our family, you know, professionally and, my wife and our, and our marriage and all that. I think when you go through tough times and you go through challenges, um, you know, it really, people have a choice in those moments to decide whether or not they're going to kind of lean in to the family or if they're going to kind of break apart and kind of have a difficult time and separate and have, you know, it's going to break you apart and you're going to struggle. And for whatever reason, you know, um, it's come fairly, uh, naturally for Shalina and me and, and Barlow, as you mentioned, is incredible. I mean, man, she is such a good big sister to him. She already knows how to do a bunch of his medicines and feeding tube and all of this stuff. And she's seven, you know, it's, it's unbelievable how caring she is. But for all of us, I think it's made us really tight. You know, we are really close. We really lean into the challenges together and we have tried to do the best we can to make it as normal as we possibly can which is why we cared so much about him going to a regular kindergarten class and a regular school with the aid. We didn't want him to go to a different program and different families have different needs and different desires for their children. But I'm telling you in our circumstance, we want to give our son the best possible chance 
to one day make a major impact on the world and be as independent as possible. And man, I feel really like weird name dropping this right now, but I'm going to go ahead and name drop somebody right now for you, Jared. Okay. So I was at a Mavs game getting ready to do a live shot and Mark Cuban was shooting baskets before the game. Like he does before, you know, it happens from time to time. And I ended up striking up a conversation with him and we started talking about Hudson and Mark was one of the most encouraging people in our little 20 minute conversation that we had about voice technology, things like Alexa, things like the technology that's there to be able to do things voice activated and what that's going to look like for Hudson down the road. And it was an amazingly encouraging conversation about if he is able to use his device to have a voice, his communication device called a Toby Dynavox, he will someday be able to tell an Alexa, a voice command system of some type to drive him to a certain place in a house, to put him into the car and drive him to a place like a store, things like that. These are all in the near future for this technology. And it opened our eyes as to what the potential is for him. If he can just master this device, which he's doing right now, which is also encouraged us to try to make him as normal as we possibly can, you know, using normal in the, uh, the best sense of the word there. But we want him to fit in, and we want him to feel like a regular five-year-old as much as we possibly can. He has his challenges, but he's fully mentally there, man, and he's really, really smart. I mean, it's unreal. His ability, his memory is incredible. And so, and like I said, he's already reading and um, reads back to us. We hold up the book, and he says the word on the device that it's on the book. And we go through go, dog, go, and one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish, all of these. He goes through all of that on his device, and he's – just turning five years old. So we're excited about what 15 is going to look like for him.